Hello everyone and welcome to the CSAE Research Podcast. I'm Pramila Krishnan, Professor of Development Economics at Oxford. This is a series of conversations about projects taking place at the Centre for the Study of African Economies at the University of Oxford. Standard microcredit contracts seem to have modest, if any, effect on the performance of small firms and no effect on household consumption. Could we construct a better design product to improve on the standard contract? Today, we're going to discuss the project Asset-Based Microfinance for Microenterprises in Pakistan. The project explores whether alternative contracts do better. They explore the effects of offering larger financial products, particularly with the option of flexible repayment, to previous microfinance borrowers who have been successful and repaid their loans. This is a project run in partnership between the Centre for the Study of African Economies, Innovations for Poverty Action and Private Enterprise Development in Low-Income Countries. So to find out more about this project and its impact, we're going to join the key players. Simon Quinn, Deputy Director of the Centre for the Study of African Economies and Associate Professor of Economics here in Oxford. Mohamed Mekhi, a Departmental Lecturer at the Department of International Development here in Oxford as well. And from Pakistan, Faisal Bari, a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Development in Economic Alternatives and also at the Lahore University of Management Sciences, as well as Kashif Malik, an Associate Professor in Economics at the Lahore University of Management Sciences as well. Welcome again, and thank you for joining me. I'd like to get um, all of the team to explain the project in more detail. So to begin, perhaps Faisal, you might lead the discussion and explain the key questions the project aimed to address. Thank you very much, Bram. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so um, as you explained in the intro that you gave. Microfinance has shown a lot of promise and um, for uh, quite some time questions around microfinance were well, what kind of contributions can it make to not just alleviating poverty, changing the consumption patterns of those households, but also what contribution can it give to growth and development of uh, small businesses business. Now, uh, we know that small businesses, and especially in uh, developing countries, tend to be very credit constrained, and that's one of their uh, major issues. Whenever you do any surveys on asking them about constraints to growth, access to finance comes in. And the question um, that we, we were trying to see in the literature, there were, we felt a few gaps in the sense that uh, uh, what would happen if you increase the size of the, the resource that you transferred to the enterprise? Will that allow the enterprise to change substantially in terms of growth, profits, revenue, and also what kind of impacts would it have on the household? How do you make that product compatible on the one side for the provider, uh, the microfinance bank or the institution in terms of its calculus? Because um, as you know, for most of microfinance collateral, is not in the form of the usual collateral that we used to take from uh, from banks. It's either reputational or other things that we use as collateral. And so how does the institution make that kind of uh, trade-off and make it, it compatible? And on the other side, how do you make it more flexible in terms of payment schedules, in terms of the requirements of the various kinds of businesses 
that people at that level in terms of you know moving out poverty into to slightly above that and or a little more than slightly above that how do you make the product compatible with their requirements and needs so those were the few flexibilities that we were trying to look at and introduce so what we thought of was can we experiment with a very established microfinance provider but increase the size of the product significantly and rather than just a standard loan we go into asset financing assets are tend, tend to be bundled and that's one of the things that small businesses find difficult to finance because they don't have accumulated capital in the same way so how would you um, would that kind of large instrument based on the asset as a collateral also can that solve the problem for the provider in terms of its incentive compatibility and on the other hand can it provide the injection in terms of resources to the business and then therefore change the trajectory of the business significantly so that was the whole idea behind this particular project thanks thanks a lot for that kashif uh, perhaps you want to leap in and tell us a little bit about how the project was implemented i imagine mohammed and simon might want to add their bits too uh, thanks for having me on the post podcast uh, sure I, i'll i'll briefly explain implementation strategy of the project so what we have done is we identified a large pool of borrowers who had successfully completed a loan cycle with the microfinance institution and we were targeting people who want to expand their business through purchase of a fixed asset that cost significantly higher than the prevailing uh, borrowing limited so we have offered a collateralized asset financing structure that has not previously been used in the experimental microfinance literature uh, namely a higher purchase agreement in which the client's ownership share in the asset increases as repayments are made this type of uh, arrangement combines two distinct contracts under one product a shared ownership contract and a rental contract so we have conducted a field experiment in which we offered these graduated microfinance borrowers the opportunity to finance a business a- asset worth up to approximately 2000 us dollars so we implemented two types of higher purchase agreements one is the fixed repayment contract another is the flexible repayment contract both contracts were 18 months uh, and they allow clients to finance the purchase of a fixed asset up to value of 200000 rupees and the client was obliged to initially purchase 10% of the asset with the mfi purchasing the remaining 90% and the rental amount was based on a nominal annual rate of 12% so in our treatment we have we offered two type of contracts one is the fixed repayment contract in this contract the client was required to purchase 5% of mfi's ownership share each month and after 18 months the client would fully own the asset the second treatment arm the client was only obliged to purchase which is the flexible repayment contract the client was only obliged to purchase 2.5% of of the mfi's ownership share each month and the client also had the option to pay more than what was required in any given month and if client purchase all of the mfi's share before the 18 months period was over the contract would terminate 
another case if the client had not fully purchased the mfi's share at the end of 18 months the contract gives the mfi the right to sell the asset in the market and the proceeds dispersed in proportion to the ownership shares at the time of sale um, in our control group clients were randomly assigned and they were to control group and they were eligible for the mfi's standard cash loan uh, worth 475 dollars borrowing limit in the end you know the 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 procedure for the default in both contracts is identical if a client misses a payment they receive a one month grace period if they still do not pay the asset is repossessed and sold in the market so proceeds are then dispersed proportional to the ownership share at the time of the default reflecting the shared ownership structure so that's the the brief implementation strategy of the project thank you very much can i just jump in and ask just a couple of simple questions which is what sort of assets are we talking about so these were uh, rickshaws sewing machines lathe machines cameras and couple of other assets seeing as pramila was asking about uh, the assets and I, presumably um at some point you you probably want to know about some of the challenges that we we had on the project we had interest from um many people who who wanted to expand their business with assets but they they weren't quite fixed assets um, and so we had a we had a particular focus in this project on fixed assets like the type that Kash have just mentioned uh, rickshaws sewing machines other manufacturing machines although we did have a number of people who came and wanted working capital for their business and we weren't able to provide that which is i guess one of the you know it, it wasn't so nice to turn people away um who, who wanted to expand their business with working capital but we just uh, weren't able to provide that product because we, we had this focus on on fixed assets excellent i don't know whether you know you had any particular at carving up of the project uh in terms of your roles within it or do you think of it as completely collaborative being involved in every aspect together i i guess we did have different roles and they evolved over time and so you know we all spent a lot of time together um in pakistan having meetings especially when working on the design we had a number of meetings in the lahore university of management sciences the four of us together and we conducted a pilot before we scaled up this project so um our roles evolved over time clearly faisal and kashif are, are based in pakistan so they're closer to the ground kashif was very heavily involved with the uh, with the implementation and you know he'd be the great person to kind of speak to in terms of the challenges of implementation because he was kind of the front line in terms of the the partnership with the local microfinance institution partner and so if you want any details of challenges in implementation cash for your mind for that i think absolutely i think that is what we want <laughs> so uh we're going to ask kashif what he thought were let's say the three main challenges the project faced did you have uh, any instances where you had to go in and repossess at all yes i mean there were 5% uh, cases uh where the asset was repossessed and then sold in the market and then the proceed were shared between the client and the microfinance institution now on the challenges one of the biggest challenges that we faced explaining our partner the importance of the control group you know it is always you know they come up again and again and ask that why do we really need a control group now this is like a sort of a broad challenge you face in every type of our city but uh, in our case uh, since akhwat our partner mfi hasn't done an rct before that so they were really concerned that why we are giving some people you know a bigger size uh, of finance and then we are keeping a control group you know and they are getting a, a small amount 
So that is one of the challenges uh, we faced uh, in terms of, you know, explaining to them how important is the control group to see, really see the effect, you know, uh, the treatment effect uh, at the end of the study. Another important challenge is the, the sample size. You know, like we do power calculations and uh, we need to see that we have enough power to explain our result. But again, it's difficult to explain it to our partner that why do we need to say a 900 sample? They say, why can't we do it with 100? So, so that, that is again, another uh, difficulty we faced in convincing them that why do we need a bigger size? Reason being that, of course, I mean, if you are, um, you know, giving finances to uh, say more than 300 people and the amount is 200,000, then it's in millions. And uh, they, they had to invest that money. So, but uh, we had hard time explaining to them that why, you know, we are uh, choosing a specific sample size. Another challenge which we face uh, on the part of clients that though we explain to them that uh, we are offering them fixed asset uh, in a collateralized sort of uh, contract, uh, but at the end they wanted working capital because you know someone wants to buy more than one asset with that money. Someone wants to build uh, an extension in their shop. Uh, so a lot of clients, you know, they were dropped because they wanted the working capital instead of uh, a fixed asset which we offered in this particular project. Uh, maybe Maki wants to add more. Just to build on something that Kashif said, we had a certain amount of capital that the MFI had committed to exploring this new product. And so it was explained, there's only a certain number of people that can get this new product. And the MFI is interesting, interested in testing whether this would be an effective product for helping people expand their business. And that's why uh, it can't be given to everyone at this stage. There's potential for it to be rolled out in the future in terms of the control group again yeah as Kashif said this is probably something that many people have to uh, this kind of conversation many people would engage with with their uh, partners it's, it's, these days maybe we use we use the, the example of the vaccines and, and the importance of testing vaccines in a rigorous manner even though we have a sense that the vaccine is a useful thing you, they still had to have a control group before vaccines could be approved you know these days we probably use that kind of example to, to explain that to our partners um, but no doubt this is a challenge that um, many people face and as Kashif said you know it was nice to, having to turn some people away from our project because we couldn't fund working capital but you know hopefully that gives us a, a potential future idea for a project where we can help people finance their working capital one other thing, I since we're being honest about challenges, we had an earlier pilot and in the pilot, we had an even more flexible contract and one of the clients didn't behave well under that contract in the sense that they were behaving in, in a, the way that was slightly concerning to us about the sustainability of that contract, which ultimately helped us uh, redesign the contracts for, for the larger project. And um, this was, you know, the first project that I was working on during my PhD um, and really showed me the, the value of, of doing careful piloting before scaling up to a larger project um, i really learned the lesson on this project i think that's that's really really useful to understand because obviously you know even even a, a well-designed project in carry runs into all sorts of obstacles when you're faced with real people in, in, in the real world perhaps we should move on however and talk a little bit about um, the results um, i mean going from the challenges to the results do we understand the impact that the project had and the constraints that it might have faced. Thank you, Pramila. 
Um, we, we, when we look at the effects of our intervention, the effects of the treatment uh, using follow-up surveys, we measure business impacts and household impacts at uh, six-month stage, 12-month stage, 18-month stage, and 24-month stage, so up to two years after the intervention. And we find that assets increased a lot for the treatment group relative to the control group, even after a couple of years. So our average effects suggest around 40% greater assets for the treatment group compared to the control group. And this increase in assets then flows through in, ter- in terms of an increase in profits for their business. So the treatment group on average have an increase of profits of about 11% per month compared to the control group. And this uh, then positively impacts the household in terms of household consumption expenditure. So there's a greater expenditure on um, education, specifically schooling for girls, also greater expenditure on food for the household. So positive impacts are both for the business in terms of assets, profits, and then flowing through to impacts on the household. So we were happy to see those uh, positive results uh, and persistent. So it's not the case that they were just short term and then disappearing at the two-year point, they seem uh, relatively uh, persistent. That sounds really exciting. And, you know, the, the obvious question might be, is there room to scale this up across Pakistan, say, and or is there room to, to integrate it into the formal lending sector, given that you've started, um, you know, with a microfinance organisation, which might be constrained by how much you can lend? So these are great questions. And It's something we're exploring in um, future projects. One thing that we're planning at the moment is um, trying to look at some of the assets that were most uh, productive for for these clients and rickshaws were were particularly productive. And um, we have a project at the moment that's in in, in the design phase where we're uh, trying to help female rickshaw drivers, um, focusing specifically on female kind of economic empowerment. Um, In terms of uh, scaling up, we we do have a good relationship now uh, subsequent to this project and subsequent to something um, that we worked up on during COVID, we have a good relationship with the regulators in Pakistan and we've, we're in discussion with them and they're aware that we're testing out some of these projects, uh, products um, and, and we're interested in, in, in testing different forms of this product. And so we are conscious that uh, it's important to, to continue this discussion with the regulators. And there are two regulatory bodies which would regulate microfinance institutions in Pakistan. There's the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, which regulate the non-bank financial institutions. And there's also the State Bank of Pakistan, which would regulate the deposit-taking institutions. And interestingly, Huwet, uh, the, the, the partner, um, is using a similar contract structure now on a different project, which is asset financing before housing finance. And so in, in a sense, the, there is similarity there in the product they're, they're implementing in, in a different space. But this is definitely something I want to explore in, in future research, especially this idea of large um, assets and potentially something that Simon once would talk about soon when, when he talks about the mechanisms and the model that we use in the paper to try and rationalize our finding and think about what impact these large injections are having in, for these households. Oh, thank you. And yes, I mean, I'd want Simon to come in as a group of academics, one of a key interest, uh, apart from whether, you know, this is this is a well-designed intervention and has impact, has got to be understanding how to make sense of this theoretically. And so, Simon, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, thanks, Pramila. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for joining. It's great to have this podcast. So we did build a model and we tried to fit the model to the data. That's to say it's a structural model. I always feel like I have a love-hate relationship with models and data. 
On the one hand, it's a lot of fun and it's interesting to think about possible mechanisms. On the other hand, sometimes the model can be brutally honest in uh, making sure that your assumptions actually make sense. So we set up this model and the model just imagines a very stylized situation where you've got a household that's running a small business and it's trying to decide how much cash to hold, how much fixed capital to invest in the business to, in order to increase future profits and how much to consume. And the interesting thing is you set that model up and you ask for its predictions and it keeps basically trying to tell you the same thing, which is, look, if you think that the returns to fixed capital in small businesses are really high, and both our estimates and indeed the rest of the literature seem to support that, then it must be the case that these households should be investing a lot in their business. So even in the control group, even absent our product, we should see large and sustained increases in the size of small businesses. And what's more, it would be nice to give our product, but it certainly wouldn't make a profound or lasting difference because the control group is going to be able to invest in order to catch up. But of course, that's not what we observe in our experimental context. And it's not what other people observe looking at microenterprises around the world. Microenterprises basically stay small for the most part. So what we thought about in the model is, well, what if it's not as simple as that? What if there are important restrictions on the kind of investments that people can make in fixed capital? And we're not the first to have this idea. We build on ideas in the literature. Formally, the literature will call this non-convex capital adjustment costs, but I like to think of it as basically saying that you can't buy an auto rickshaw one wheel at a time. Or put differently, if you try to do that, the rickshaw is not going to make you any money until you get the fourth wheel and the steering wheel and the windscreen and all the rest of it. Now, if that's the case, that these kind of capital investments can't be made at a small incremental stage, they have to be either made in big lumpy investments or not made at all, then the model starts telling you something very different. For one thing, it tells you that most businesses will not change their fixed capital stock from one period to the next. That's something that we observe, not only in our context, but around the world. These businesses do not change their fixed capital stock. Second, you can simultaneously have a high return to fixed capital in the business while also having a really low return to holding cash, possibly because there's inflation. Maybe your family and friends are always taking it from you, promising to repay you at some unspecified future date and so on. And if that's the case, then what you'll find is that people are quite cash poor. They're not holding large lump sums in cash. And therefore, it doesn't make sense for them to slowly accumulate cash in order to make a big profitable investment. And indeed, that also is something that we see in our data as well. These, these microenterprises are not holding a lot of cash. Now, if that's a reasonable reflection of the world, then actually it explains that the kind of product we offered could be incredibly useful because it allows a kind of investment that not just was going to happen later, but was possibly just never going to happen for these microenterprises. And we think that's consistent with our results, but also some of the other results in academic literature on microenterprises, which seems to find that if you give a large lumpy transfer, then you can actually have large and sustained impacts on both business and, uh, and household welfare. So the, the model really kind of held our feet to the fire, but I think in doing so, it, it uh, maybe helped us to understand one of the reasons that these kind of larger loans might make a lot of sense, at least for the kind of graduated microenterprises that we're working with in this project. I wanted to make one other point about this product, and I am unambiguously less qualified than any of my three co-authors to speak about this. But it's worth noting that the class of product we offered would often be known, in, say, in the UK or the US as a high purchase contract. 
But in Pakistan, this could be understood as a diminishing masharika. That's to say that this product is Sharia compliant. And I think that's important for two reasons. First, in our experiment, the control group were offered zero interest loans. Now, that is already massively more generous than almost any other kind of microfinance uh, product that's going around in the academic literature. So that's already a very high bar for our product to clear. It's not enough that our product outperforms the usual microfinance contract that we see in the world. It had to actually outperform a zero nominal interest uh, microfinance loan in the control group, and it did that. But the second point is, I think we're just at a, at a kind of quite early stage in trying to understand how more creative design of microfinance products might enable greater financial inclusion for a lot of the unbanked poor in many Islamic countries. I'm not suggesting that the Sharia compliance is always and everywhere the reason that these people are unbanked, but I think there's really exciting scope to, to think about creative Sharia compliant financial products that may go a long way to reaching households that previously have felt very excluded from traditional banking systems. Now, as I say, I am massively underqualified to speak about this, and I should let my three other co-authors come in. Yes, I, I agree with Simon. I think, especially now, people in the world of microfinance are thinking more about financial inclusion and populations who may not have access to the type of financial products that they require, given their own preferences, etc. I think we, we think that this product or these types of products can, can bring in a greater number of people, especially in populations with large uh, number of, of Muslims or any other uh, people of any other faith. Um, and as Faisal said, uh, this is part of a growing strand of the microfinance literature that really tries to provide more tailored products rather than just the classic kind of Grameen product being applied to everyone, thinking about uh, people's own preferences and people's own requirements and providing them um, with more tailored products and that takes into account the, their preferences and what could be most effective for them. Thanks, Simon and Mohammed. That was fantastically clear. But I just wanted to add one thing that, uh, as Simon said, there are, having said all of that in terms of it being uh, compliant, um, we, we did not use religious language at all when explaining this product. We were very conscious not to use any Arabic language. We, we described it purely in terms of cash flows. And, and as Simon said, the cash flow structure of this contractual structure that uh, this con contract that was implemented ha has, has parallels to many structures that are used in, in lease contracts and higher purchase contracts uh, across the world. So it doesn't look dramatically different in terms of the underlying cash flows. And we were um, very careful the way that we described the product in terms of the, the underlying uh, cash flows rather than uh, and specifically did not use any sort of religious language or any sort of Arabic terms at all. Yes, I just wanted to add that I mean, we wouldn't have been able to make sense of those Arabic terms for most people. Our clientele was people who had small businesses. They were not from the world of finance, etc. So it would have been these very difficult Islamic finance terms would have been difficult for them also. They are actually difficult for some of us as well. But that's another side. The other thing I just wanted to say was um, that in um, surveys of um, when you're doing surveys in Pakistan about and asking the people about why do they not go to banks, etc., there is definitely a significant number of people who point out that um, compliance with Islamic um, laws and Sharia and the issue of interest is an issue for them. It's not for all of them, but for, for quite a few, it is an issue. And so they might either going to friends, family or other or, or places where they can get more flexible arrangements which go into um, asset financing, profit loss arrangements, etc. So in that sense, such instruments and experimenting with such instruments is a, is a very good idea.
Thank you. That that was very useful. I suppose it might be interesting to ask at uh, some stage whether indeed your more formal lending sector might be able to design instruments inspired by the experiments that you've run and the impacts that you've had. Yeah, so I was just uh, wanted to say that uh, there is a big demand of risk sharing products within Pakistan. Uh, it wasn't explored before. And as we were discussing about uh, scale up of such projects, Akhuat, our partner MFI, is already considering uh, the same asset-based product to be implemented. Slightly, they wanted to increase the number of months, but that 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 I wanted to add. Yeah, thank you, Kash. And just uh, to, to end on Pramila's question, when presenting this paper and sending it to people and getting feedback, a number of people were wondering, how does this scale up? And, and more specifically, what's the right type of institution to offer this kind of product? We are working with a microfinance institution, but others have suggested to us that potentially it, it, if you're focusing on particular productive assets, particular assets that could help a large number of people, then perhaps produce manufacturers of those assets could provide that type of financing. And so we would, we would need to think, you know, going back to what uh, Faisal was mentioning about the type of information that a microfinance institution has and the type of trust that they have with their borrowers, the type of information that they have that maybe others do not have. We need to think about whether a manufacturer of such assets could actually provide this type of financing. Um, but it's something that has been raised to us as a possibility. You could have these big companies that produce productive assets, which, which, which could actually finance uh, this directly. And, and obviously, we know from a number of uh, other um, successful development interventions, such as the graduated programs uh, pioneered by BRAC and others, and that there are sometimes these clear productive assets that can benefit a large number of people. And so if you think about specific assets, there are potentially other ways of, of delivering these to, to people that do not necessarily have to go through a microfinance institution, even though that's the route that we've taken on this particular project. Thank you very much. I think that was just a splendid discussion and there's lots of food for thought here. I just say that when people were talking about challenges, etc., I think one of the joys of doing this sort of research and one of the challenges always is the length of time it takes to do an RCT uh, carefully and uh, pilot it and then bring it to completion in, in the field. It takes a number of years and the, the, that's in itself is a challenge, but also the joy of working with amazing people is all the, the other side of it and the pleasure of it. Can I, can I also add the positive note since Faisal ended on a positive note? Yes, it's taken a very long time to implement this as many other projects as well, but it's, it's been such a pleasure to, to, to visit the country and to spend time in, in Lahore University of Management Sciences where Kashif and Faisal hosted us and introduced us to so many of their students and the, the opportunity to learn from so many people in the country and, and with uh, local researchers has just been really life-changing, I would say, uh, because it led to so many other projects. It also just helped so much in terms of my own development as, as a PhD student and since. So it, it's really, really been great. And I know this builds on a very long tradition at CSAE of, of working in the field, working very close with partners, uh, yourself, Pramila, and, 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 and others and in Ethiopia and other places. And it, it's really, really been an enormously beneficial experience way beyond just this particular project. Completely agree. And uh, when the world and the COVID situation permits, I know we're, uh, we're all looking forward to visiting again. I'm just going to end on a slightly more personal note and ask Faisal and Kashif what they made of Pakistan's wonderful T20 victory over India and how they think that happened. Far too magnanimous. Just, just <laughs> add New Zealand as well. And New Zealand as well. Yes. We enjoyed, we thoroughly enjoyed both. 
it was, <laughs> it was lovely to see um, uh, these games. But I mean, I tend to not watch Pakistan when Pakistan is playing because then I can't really enjoy the game. I get too involved. So I'm actually enjoying the other matches more. And uh, it's nice to see Pakistan win once in a while. Indeed, and it'll be lovely to be able to, as Simon says, travel for research and uh, exchange ideas, but also perhaps be able to travel to see the teams. So thank you, Simon. Thank you, Mohamed. And thank you, Faisal and Kashif, for joining us for this fantastic discussion. And finally, thank you to everybody for listening to this CSAE Research Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.